As we continue to worship, I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to John chapter 7, verse 37, for our message this morning, Wilderness Water. Well, it was the last day of a several-day backpacking trip in the wilderness of Big Bend National Park. At the time, I was the, the youngest among us. It was my dad, my brother, and two family friends. I was only a preteen at the time, so I can hardly be blamed for the poor planning of the details of this thing. But come several days into the trip, in fact, our last day, we began descending from the mountain peak that we had climbed on our, the day before back to where we knew our car was parked at the park headquarters finishing up several days worth of wandering around the trails, carrying everything that we needed, cooking our own food, drinking the water we had brought with us. And it was on that last day, a mile or two from our final destination, that we realized that all of us together had run out of water. Everything that we had brought, we had drunk along the way. The day was hot and, and we were drinking more than we expected. We had used it to cook our food that morning as we had for the whole trip. And there was none left. But we were in luck because the map had showed us that there was a, a spring in the ground on, uh, near the trail that we would cross. And so we knew and had been anticipating that when we got to this point, we would simply refill our bottles with natural spring-fed water. And we had the tablets to purify it and would use it really only in, as a last resort. Everything else we'd taken was bottled water. When we got to the spring, we located it on the map, and you would think a spring would be easy to find. You could just follow the running water to it. Except we found this spring only on dry ground, surrounded only by parched earth, and there wasn't anything bubbling up. In fact, there was a big steel door over the top of it and a padlock. In case you really got curious, they didn't want you to go digging. The map had fooled us. There was no water there. And so we stood around looking at one another, wondering, well, what do we do next? Do we just carry on and risk it and think, assume we'll make it to the car, make it down to, to a water source and have plenty to drink? Or do we consider other measures or going out of our way to find water somewhere else? And that's when somebody spotted it hidden amongst the trees and a strange little fence around it, there was a, well, there's not a word for it other than a trough. And, and horse would be a kind word. I assume it was really there for the mules that they would use to pack stuff up to this mountain peak or even take people up for a view of the top. And it sat there and it was not the kind of mule water that had been used recently. It was water that had been sitting there for a while. And against our better judgment, we figured this is our best shot to make sure we at least have a backup plan if things go really south here or someone wants to get injured or we needed more time. And so we took our bottles and took their lids off and looked into the trough. <laughs> In that rectangle box, we decided there was, there was probably something worth using between the insect activity on top and the mysterious growth emerging from the bottom of it. And so we took our, our bottles and we put them quickly past the insect activity on the top, but not too deep to stir up the, the life growing on the bottom and filled our bottles up, 
pulled them, put the lid on and held it up to see what we'd found. And it looked like sweet tea when all the ice melts with a few friends floating inside. We read the directions on the back of our water purification tablets and we looked at our sweet tea with friends floating inside and thought, there's nothing this can do for this. But fearing for our lives, we took the lids off and one maggot at a time, we began to drink at gulp. I'm kidding. We, we wouldn't do such a thing. We did each fill one bottle and stick it in our packs in case we needed to boil it or use water purification, but it was really just a joke more than anything. We continued down the mile, mile and a half back down, no problem to our car and ended our trip. But there is a kind of thirst, a kind of search for water that comes when you're in the wilderness. There's thirst and then there's like wilderness thirst. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of thirst on a, a hot day, the need for water, for life, the, the concern that you might run out of it. It's a concern that was not unknown to God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, the Israelites in the Old Testament uh, seemed to be around water at every turn, and not just water, but thirst. And God had led them across bodies of water, had helped them divide water and cross over, and Moses and Exodus is leading his people. And they found themselves freed from slavery, having crossed waters that God led them through only to discover that they were now in the wilderness with no water to be found. And it was Exodus chapter 17 to be exact when Moses discovers that the people are quarreling among themselves. Maybe you remember this famous passage. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? And they all come to him and they kind of corner him. The pressure's on. They tell him, give us water that we may drink. They looked at Moses and said, listen, you got to understand, we thirst. But Moses told them there was no water. He corrected them, asked them, why do you test the Lord? In Exodus 17, he said, why do you quarrel with me? But the people thirsted there for water. They grumbled against Moses and said, why have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Why would God do all of this good to us, rescue us from slavery, only to lead us into the wilderness and leave us without water? And so Moses approaches God about this and the Lord gives Moses instructions that you may remember. Moses asks, what shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me, God. And the Lord said to Moses, I want you to pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come up out of it that the people may drink. The story would go down in Israelite history as one of the most miraculous provisions God ever made in all of the Old Testament that at the striking of Moses' staff, water came bursting forth from the ground and the people in need of it drank and had plenty. You see, the people in the wilderness New thirst. See, on the one hand, it's 
the most basic of human experiences. Every one of us in the room has felt what it feels like to thirst, but it's also one of the deepest and most complex stories in all of Israel's history, all of God's people. In our passage today, Jesus draws on this human experience, the simplest of things in the most detailed of stories. He draws on that imagery to make this simple yet profound statement about who he is and what kind of life it is that he offers to you and to the world. See, today's text, you heard it read earlier, comes near the end of Jesus' visit to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, we sometimes translate it. It was one of the big three festivals in Jewish life, Passover, also known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, happened around March or April. There was Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, took place in May or June. And we're more familiar with these two events, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us about Jesus uh, making visits to all of these, interacting with them in several ways. These were two of the three feasts that Jewish males were expected to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem to visit and to engage with. And the, it's John who gives us this unique record of Jesus' encounter with the third great feast. At the beginning of John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers suggest that he go with them to this festival of tabernacles. They know that it's a big deal and they think this might be a good opportunity for Jesus to make himself known. Now Jesus rejects that suggestion because he says his time has not come and his, his mission isn't about fame or popularity or drawing a crowd. And, and so Jesus says that his, his mission even evokes hatred from the world rather than popularity and he testifies against its evil works. But after he's made this point to his brothers, Jesus later goes in secret to Jerusalem where these crowds have begun gathering for this third of the great festivals. The city is full and the, the temple is busy. It was originally a, a harvest celebration, a time of ingathering of all the crops from that season. But by the time of Jesus's life, even in the, the book of Leviticus where it's recorded, this feast of tabernacles had become a remembrance of God's provision in the wilderness. It was a time when they remembered moments like Moses's when God provided water from the rock that he struck. And so at the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, people would build these temporary dwellings right there in the city courtyard. They were reminiscent of what farmers might have built in the time of harvest out in the field so they could work the crops. They reminded the people of the harvest, but they also came to remind the people of the kind of temporary dwellings that they lived in in their time in the wilderness when they had no land and they followed God by faith after being freed from Egypt. Now these tabernacles or booths were structures, temporary structures with walls that had palm branches or branches that formed a roof and their families would come and they would live in them for this eight day feast inside Jerusalem. Families would eat their meals and sleep inside them. They would look up at the stars and remember the God who had led their people by fire in the night. And as they celebrated this, seven days of remembrance with a holy convocation on the eighth day, they were 
celebrating all that God had done to provide for them. And nothing was more central to God's provision for them in the wilderness than moments like Moses's when he struck the rock and they got water for thirsty mouths and quenched their souls. And so at the center of this Feast of Tabernacles was a water drawing ceremony. You see, it happened every single day. The, the priests would parade down with fanfare to the pool of Siloam, the main water source for Jerusalem. And people would follow by the masses as they took down to the pool of Siloam a golden pitcher. And the priests robed in white would carry that golden pitcher down to the pool of Siloam and they would draw water up out of it. And they would begin to walk back with people following them and singing songs all the way back to the temple. They would carry it down a path lined with people on these packed and crowded city streets. People would sing songs, songs from places like Isaiah 12, where it says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And they would take that golden pitcher and they would go up to the temple, all the way back up, back through the water gate. The priests would take that water all the way to the altar. And the priest robed in white would take the golden pitcher and he'd pour it into a silver funnel so that it would spill all over just right, all over the altar in the middle of the temple. Now this ceremony was to begin the prayers for God's provision of rain, of water for his people. They'd begin to rejoice in expectant joy that God was gonna do that again that they'd have another harvest because God brings the rain, because God quenches our thirst. You know, there was so much celebration around this particular festival that the Jewish texts say that he who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of water drawing has never seen rejoicing in all his life. It's like Jellystone and Great Wolf Lodge and church all rolled into one. It's water day at VBS. People are excited, the water's being poured out, they're singing songs. And after it was poured out, they would pray and they would, they would march the 15 steps from one court in the temple down to the next and they would sing all 15 of the Psalms of Ascent as they did it. Because they believed that God would provide and that these rituals, this festival was a part of that. And the water ceremony centered on the way that God provides wilderness kind of water. So when our text this morning begins, by locating Jesus's words on the last and greatest day of this Feast of Tabernacles, it's not just cluing us into what time it happened. It's grabbing hold of the, the symbolism that John doesn't want us to meet and that Jesus is making use of deep moments in the life of Israel that Jesus wants to speak about here in the temple. And it would have been a day filled with anticipation by everyone in attendance. And it was at this moment and at this context that Jesus is sitting before the crowds. And I imagine, I usually assume that Jesus has a really good idea of what he's trying to do. It's hard not to think that maybe he just wanted to be unseen, that he was just gonna observe 
what was happening in this particular feast or festival and he just couldn't take it anymore and he just feels a need to finally speak up and to set things right or, or maybe he planned to say this all along. Either way, John seven thirty seven tells us that Jesus was, was seated. You know, teachers in his day always taught seated. Jesus even, even preaches and teaches while sitting down. And John's careful to tell us in chapter 7, verse 37, that as Jesus watches, he just can't take it anymore. And so he gets up and rises to his feet and he stands up in front of them. And he doesn't just speak, he doesn't just talk. It says he cries out as if with a loud voice. I don't know if he, he shouted or pleaded, if his hands were over his mouth or beside his side, but he tells them, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. In the middle of this water drawing ceremony, on a day they've gathered to parade the pitcher up to the altar and pour it out over and over again. On the last day, they would do it seven times. As if to say, the people were saying, we remember the God who brought water from the rock. And Jesus is saying, he has provided it again. All their attention is focused on their, their prayers for the futures. They're, they're reenacting all of this with hope. Hope in words that are recorded in Ezekiel. That someday God was going to make a, a river flow from the temple. That's what Ezekiel said. A, a river would flow from the temple. And everywhere that that river went, everywhere that it goes, everything will come to life. And in that moment, Jesus stands up. And he cries out, it's me. You wait for a new river from an old temple that will bring life to everything it touches. Wait no more. You're looking in a dry and parched land for something that will quench the thirst of your souls. I'm here now. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And many since, and many still, will miss the simplicity of this gospel announcement in the middle of John chapter 7. John won't let us miss it. Jesus is intentional in the words he uses. He won't let it get cluttered out with other adjectives. He says the good news of new life in him is for anyone who thirsts. It's not for the ones who understand it all in advance. It's not for the ones whose past record meets the standard. He doesn't say, I'm yours if you'll show up dressed in the right way at the right time. The invitation isn't for those who will never mess up again or have learned enough or live in the right place. It's not race or age or any other adjective we can add. Jesus comes and says, anyone who thirsts, the only qualification to get what Jesus is offering is to recognize that you thirst. See, Jesus doesn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. He doesn't come for those of us who have it all together, but those of us who are destitute, completely in drought, realizing there's nowhere else to turn but to the water of life he brings. 
The psalmist knew this in Psalm 42 when he wrote, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I wonder this morning, what quenches the thirst that you feel deep within? You see, on the one hand, who among us doesn't know that we thirst, not just physically, but that we have a a spiritual longing for something more, that there is an, an emptiness, a brokenness in this world, that all is not as it should be in us or in our world. We thirst And on the one hand, while all of us know that experience, it is as as common as everyday life. So many of us quench that thirst, seek to fill that longing, that void, that desire with anything but the living water. Maybe in days of difficulty, you just work a little harder or put in more hours than usual at work, hoping to quench that thirst. Maybe when things are tougher, you narrow in on those around you to try and get your your family to be perceived in just the right way because that's what you found really brings you meaning. You don't have significance unless everyone around you is in in line. It could be that you're a teenager here today who's feeling a need to have everything perfect at school or in your sport or in your hobby. Maybe you're struggling someone in this room to to know what it's like to enter a new stage of life and how to adapt to it. And so you're, you're making up new ways to answer the question deep within you. We get thirsty in our souls. And if we aren't careful, we'll join with the people who quarreled around Moses and forgot that we got here because God can move water and he can bring us life as he pleases. Jesus invites you to come and drink from the only true source of life. And all you need, the only qualification for you or for your neighbor is to know that you thirst. Yet so many of us are busy filling our souls with the sands of self-importance, stuffing our, our mouths with the mud of materialism. We're taking gulp after gulp of religion and ritual or bite after bite of whatever the world tells us might fill us up. And Jesus says, I am the living water. You can't pour out enough pitchers on that rock to make the river you need. But I, I am what Ezekiel spoke of, a new temple in your midst from which streams of living water will come to all who thirst in abundance. Not just enough for today, but enough for tomorrow. Not just enough for you, but enough for everyone. Not just everyone, but for all time. I am the living water. And he who believes in me, Jesus continues, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. From his insides, from his stomach, it literally says, that part of the body that the Greek-speaking world thought was the center of the person. From that innermost being, those who drink from Jesus will offer rivers of living water to the world. You see, the other side of the promise is that Christ in you can become a source of life for others. He says, I am the great source, but I will make you a source for other people. I'm going to fill you with living water and I want you to overflow that others can have my life too. 
And friends, when we fail to bring our thirst to the living water, we also forfeit the fountain of living water intended to flow through us. But Jesus says, if you would come, he would give you his spirit and you could have rivers, plural, more than one, all that you need in abundance, wave after wave of living water coming from him and through you into the world that thirsts for God. A few years ago, a 29-year-old New Jersey man joined 11 others on an adventure hike in the desert wilderness of Utah. They were part of a training group, a sort of class of sorts, based out of Colorado that would uh, help push people beyond their limits. It was a 28-day survival course, and campers were required to hike for miles and drink what they can find from natural sources. And they had only knives and, and water cups, a blanket, a poncho. They were warned before the whole thing, they may lose 20 pounds in this event. It was on the second day of a hike in the Utah desert, the group set out around sunrise and stopped at 8.30 to dip their cups in a small creek in what turned out to be their only water until evening. Dave, who was along with the group, pulled a bottle from his pack but was warned not to fill it, just to drink what he needed. And they would rest periodically looking for signs for water and they began to need more. At least twice along their hike, they tried to dig for water in spots they thought they'd find it only to turn up empty. Other campers alongside Dave remembered him as cheerful, encouraging, coherent at times, but a man who quickly became deeply troubled hours before he collapsed. Every time one camper remembered that Dave would fall or lie down, it took a huge amount of effort to pick him back up. His, his speech was thick, his mouth was swollen. Every time he continued, he'd rush ahead, often in the, the wrong direction, so exhausting himself even more. At one point in the blazing sun, he mistook a tree for a person. It became clear that his dehydration, his state was severe. After growing roughly 10 hours without a drink in 100 degree heat, Dave finally fell for the last time, crippled by thirst face down in the dirt. He was 100 yards from the goal of that day's hike, a cave with a pool of water inside. But Dave would never make it to that cave. And it was a disastrously tragic loss that he would make it so close to the water source and not quite get there. But what became truly heartbreaking about the whole story was that when the, the group settled things at the end, they all learned that the three guides that were with them throughout the whole experience carried with them emergency water in their packs. See, Dave Bushnell died surrounded by water. Can you imagine Letting someone become crippled by thirst while you carry water right beside them. 
from the one who believes will flow rivers of living water, life for all who walk beside us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today with souls that are thirsty, not to drink once and be content. We come to receive your life over and over again, to fill our need for you day after day by having your spirit reside within us. We pray that you would fill us up, that we would overflow into the world, that we would not carry around water while others are parched, that we would not carry around water while others die of thirst, that we would become streams of living water. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.